some weeks when I prepare for the message, I think I, I just wish someone else could do this because I'm so convicted by the word, the text. Other weeks I think, wow, I wish everybody could do this because of the blessing that I received in preparing to preach in the truth of God's Word. And this is one of those weeks. And I would imagine you were as blessed as I was with the reading of the Scripture just now. And it's wonderful that David chose that this morning. There's so many things I'd like to say from John 13 through 16, but just don't have time to do as we think about our text this morning, Acts 1, 8 through 2, 13. Not many people love basic training in the military. Uh, I don't know, probably not too many people here have uh, gone through that. Thank God I never will go through basic training. I am um, aware, though, that basic training is enormously difficult. And outside of drill sergeants, people just don't like it. Uh, We understand, we recognize the benefit of conditioning and um, absolute obedience to absurd commands and the seemingly unending taxing of mind, body, and soul that comes along with basic training. We understand the value of all of that, but it certainly isn't easy, especially in the early days when it's such a shock to the system. And... A lot of us don't really appreciate academic training. I mean, we recognize the benefit of it, and, and some people love it. Some people love uh, studying, and in fact, you find people that you, you would say are professional students, just like there are professional military uh, members, but there are no professional lifelong uh, basic training people in the military, I can tell you that who are taking the training that that much. But in school, it's a little bit different. We know we're preparing for something, but even then, our hearts cry out for action. I can't wait till I get done with this and get on with life. I just want to be where the action is. Nonetheless, we want our doctors and our lawyers and our school teachers to have labored vigorously at their preparation for service to the rest of us. You know, as strange as it may seem, in the church, we don't seem to require the same level of preparation and training for our ministers as we do in other fields of knowledge. In fact, if we were to ask about the importance of medical training, there's no question that we would want our doctors to have trained. If you walked in and you saw a doctor without any kind of certificates on the wall and you say, Doc, I don't see that you've gone to school anywhere. He said, oh, no, well, I haven't. But I tell you what, have you been on the Internet these days? You can, you can find so much in the Internet. Now, let's, let's schedule that surgery. No, and I'm calling, making a call on my way out and reporting you. Yet with theology, we tend to think that training is unnecessary because we all have the Holy Spirit, and that's all we need in order to understand Scripture. Now, it's true that Scripture is far more accessible to an untrained layman who has the Holy Spirit than, say, a medical text would be for someone who is not trained in biology and science and chemistry and as you prepare and anatomy, as you prepare to understand this complex medical 
manual. It's also true that all followers of Jesus can learn a great deal about Scripture without formal training. It's one of the beautiful things about this book. It is not true that you can open it up, read a passage, think about it, maybe do a few cross-references, and know as much as a person who has put a great deal of study into this. You can learn the Scripture with the benefit of the Holy Spirit, but you cannot learn without study. You're just not going to gain as much as if you put the effort in to study. If we hope to understand this book, and it is in and from this book that the the, the Lord primarily speaks to us. We're going to have to study and put time in for preparation for a mission. Now, today we're going to look at a group of men and women in the book of Acts as they wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come, come to them. They've been told a new day is coming, but there are some connections with the past that you need to understand. For those of you who are new here at Grace, some of you are here for the first time. Uh, others of you are visiting your, your, your students on parent weekend. Those are the parents of freshmen. Sophomores don't get that kind of treatment anymore. Your parents don't care about you anymore if you're a sophomore or higher. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> but we, I want you to know that we're studying, beginning a study in the book of Acts. Studying Acts well requires a great deal of us because it, it, it takes us all over the Bible. We go to the Old Testament. We go to the Gospels. We go to uh, the epistles. And we're, we're looking everywhere when we study the book of Acts. There's a lot of history in the book of Acts, but there's also a great deal of theology. The title of this series is Acts, Advancing the Gospel Then and Now. That's an action title, and it should be an action title. My goodness, uh, we're going to be, be charged with the responsibility and excited with the challenge of, of sharing Jesus with those around us who don't know Him. But what are we going to say exactly if we don't understand the Bible? Well, God wants to speak to you, but you don't know anything really that God is saying except just a few things that you've gathered along the way. I don't like to study. I would just rather pray or share life with other other believers or or, or even witness and, and tell about the wonderful works of God. Not many of our soldiers like basic training, but aren't we glad they went through it? I mean, I doubt pharmacy pharmacists are going to look back and say, you know, pharmacy school were the best years of my life, except, of course, for organic chemistry. And beyond that, uh, you didn't care for it too much, but everybody loves organic chemistry. Aren't you glad for the training? The advantage of studying Scripture, especially the book of Acts, is that these are the words of eternal life. The words of medicine, the words of, of psychology, and the words of education, law, those are words of temporary life. Now, they're, they're important. By no means am I saying they're unimportant. They're very important, and they make, will make an impact for all of eternity as we live in the new heavens and the new earth. But we're not going to need doctors. I'm sure that doctors are going to do something else. We're not going to need lawyers. 
We're not going to need mechanics. I don't know how it's going to work. We're going to all be doing something else. It's important. But these are words of temporary life, whereas the word of God is the word of eternal life. I would imagine that many of you in here get pretty stoked about studying Scripture, especially when you've got the right materials, resources, and it's going to take you to the next level of your understanding, not leaving you dazed and confused. We've all been in those kinds of studies where the person starts to talk about Scripture or anything else, and you say, huh? Well, when you can grasp it, though, and and, and go to the next level, that's exciting. Well, today we're going to be looking at this preparation that the disciples engaged to receive, the preparation that they are uh, uh, for receiving the Holy Spirit of God, the promised Holy Spirit, it would come upon them. Our text is Acts 1, 8 through 2, 13. It's a long text. It, it, it follows the study that we're doing in our home groups. So we will read it because we've got limited time on it. Not going to spend a lot of time in any particular section of this, but it would be good for us to read it. So if you would, please stand for the reading of the word. And as you do so, let me encourage you to be there tonight at Butler Chapel and Call and text all your friends and tell them they absolutely have to come uh, for that service tonight, that it's required. By whom, I don't know, but it is required. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain or the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, and who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came down from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, indeed, on this day, something new came. It was your Spirit. Your Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. He's been here as long as you have, Father, and as long as the Son has. The three are one. We worship and praise you on this day. As we think about Preparing for mission, Lord, may our hearts be encouraged and challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Jesus was with his disciples some 40 days between the time that he was resurrected and his ascension, before he went back to heaven. The very last words out of his mouth before he went back to heaven constitute the mission that he gave, not only to his disciples, but to the entire church, to all of us. This, the mission is the same. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, I don't know that the disciples got that he was saying that you're supposed to take this message to the Gentiles. All of these people who were from all over the world were either Jews or were proselytes, converts to Judaism. And you just think about how the gospel that was preached to them on this day that we'll read about next week was taken all over the world from these places uh, who had come from literally all over the Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks for Pentecost. Last words are important, though, weren't they? I mean, if we 
really believe the kingdom of God is more important than the kingdoms of this world, think of how thrilling this is. What we have to say to the world is far more important than what the American ambassador says in Beijing or in New York at the United Nations. These are the words of eternal life. They're the words of the kingdom of God. And we have been chosen to take these words. You know, I'm sure the people in the day of Rome thought that the Roman Empire would never end. It did. They always do. One day, America's done. Who knows when it is? These kingdoms come and go. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that lasts forever. We've been given a job to do, and we've been given the resources and the authority to get this job done. To punctuate his words, immediately after Jesus spoke, or even during the time that he was speaking, he began to rise. That, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? Now, I mean, they had seen him walk through walls. They had seen what had happened to him at the crucifixion. They had seen him beaten almost beyond recognition. And then they saw him resurrected with the, with the nail scars in his hand, the wound in his side. But here he goes again. He's being lifted into heaven, into a cloud. And this is not just any cloud. This is the cloud that the Lord used to to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, the cloud that, that led them by day. It's the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle and that filled the temple when it was dedicated to indicate the presence and glory of God. It was nothing less than the Shekinah glory of God. And Jesus was taken into this cloud and enveloped by it. And they're processing all of this. And I, I, I am certain that if we had been there that day, we would have been doing the same thing, which is, we would have been amazed, our mouths wide open. But all of a sudden, two men in this brilliant white angels, we know that these were angels, said, men of Galilee, why is it that you stare into heaven. Don't you know he's coming back? In essence, what they were saying was, excuse me, you were just given a mission. Now you need to get to it. It's kind of like a football coach who says, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Halftime, you know, he says, we're going to do this, this, and this. And everybody's standing there going. And finally he says, why are you standing around like a bunch of sissies? Get out there and win this football game. Now it's not exactly what the angels were saying, but it was along those lines. The angels were saying, you've been given a mission, and he's coming back. In the meantime, you need to get about what you're called to do. What were they called to do? Well, first they were called to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait. You know, again, our our first impulse is to, okay, let's go. Uh, No, wait. Wait for the Spirit. Can you imagine... What, these, what it was like going back, these disciples were... I mean, who knows, Peter may have been saying, hey, you know, when the Spirit comes upon me, I wonder if we can walk through walls like Jesus does. I mean, that would be Peter's kind of the way he would think, wouldn't it? He was the one that walked on water. He didn't want to walk on water. He did. But whatever they were thinking, You have to recognize that the disciples, even though they didn't understand everything at this point, it's clear that they had a much better grip on the gospel. This 40 days with Jesus had been pretty intense with him teaching them all about how 
God's plan all along was pointing to Jesus, and it was pointing to this day, this new day that was coming, and would still always be connected with the past. At this point, I'm certain they had no trouble believing that Jesus was God. I doubt seriously they had any trouble believing that the Holy Spirit was God. Whether they had worked out the Trinity in their minds at this point, whether the Lord had given them that much enlightenment, I'm not sure. But they recognized that God was far bigger than they had thought that He was. Because as we learned in our study about the Trinity a few years ago, it's quite clear that 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 the apostles and the disciples and all the New Testament church understood God to be one, but they also understood Him to be three persons, a trinity who was one God. All that Jesus had told them about the Holy Spirit on the night before He was crucified, we've read a little bit of that, but it's all through John 13 to 16, was coming into focus for them. So, they went back to the room where they, were, where they were staying. Most likely, this is the same upper room where they had shared the last supper with Jesus. Maybe, maybe not. A lot of speculation in this passage. People do a lot of speculating. That's, that's, that's a possibility. It, it had to be a pretty big room. So they went there and they waited. But waiting did not mean that they were inactive. What they did is a very good indication of us what God means when He tells us to wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. Does that mean, you know, you just sort of, when you, is waiting kind of like this? No, it's not. First of all, they spent a great deal of time in prayer. And it wasn't just the 11 apostles who prayed together. There were 120 disciples in all, including women. And special recognition was given to Jesus' mother, Mary. And they prayed together. But they also allotted time for studying the Word. Peter stood up and he said, let me tell you, brothers, this thing about Judas, it was predicted. And he went to the Psalms and, and Matthew, in his account of Judas, pulls in some passages from Zechariah or a passage from Zechariah. I'm sure that during this 40 days that, that the disciples probably asked Jesus, what's the, what's the deal with Judas? I mean, how did we miss that? How did He was with us all this time. How did we miss it? And Jesus said, because you weren't looking. I imagine something along those lines. You weren't looking closely enough. It's, it's here. It's here. It's in the Old Testament. And they began to understand how prophecy Worked, And they were understanding this connection of the whole, the Scripture as a whole. And when they talk about the Word, they're talking about the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't around for a while. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, after Peter talked about that, then he called for the election of a new apostle. I, I imagine you understand just how important the office of apostle was. In the early church. In order to be an apostle, one had to meet three qualifications. First, he had to have been with Jesus from his baptism on through his resurrection. Second, he had to have been appointed. He had to have been appointed by Jesus directly. Called and appointed. You, 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 and you. 
And then third, he had to have witnessed the resurrected Lord. Now, there were a lot of men, and this was restricted to men. There are a lot of men who would have met qualifications one and three. They had been with them all along. We get the idea that Jesus walked around with his 12 apostles, 12 disciples. There were a lot more people that were with him a lot of the time. There were times that he withdrew with just those 12. But there was a big contingent that went a lot of places with Jesus. They followed him around. There were over 500 people, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that saw Jesus in Galilee, most likely in Galilee, in his resurrected state. So a whole lot of people would have met this qualification. I'm sure some of those same ones that followed him. But Jesus had only called 12 apostles and one had betrayed him. You know, it's interesting that in our text, the 11 apostles discussed this matter with the 120. They had discussed it at least with the men. Possibly the women were there in the discussion as well. But this 120 people that were gathered, even still, and as they narrowed the choice down to two people, even still, they looked to Jesus to choose the successor to Judas. Almost always in the New Testament, when you see the word Lord, it's the Greek word kurios, and it refers to Jesus. Almost always when you see the word God in the New Testament, it's referring to the Father. We can always think, though, whenever you see any of these terms, For God, for the Lord, you can always think of the Trinity. God is three in one. But for the most part, when you see God, it's talking about the Father. Lord, it's talking about Jesus. And they ask the Lord to make this choice for them. And they drew lots. They cast lots. Not exactly sure. I've seen different things about this. Some say it's almost like throwing dice. um, And others say it's like drawing straws, you know. Not exactly sure how it worked. But it was a biblically accepted way in the Old Testament for determining God's will. And so they prayed, they drew lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. Now, it's interesting that you don't see this being done any time after Pentecost. We have a much better guidance system, the Holy Spirit. Now. But at that time, it was accepted. Should the apostles have tried to replace Judas, or did they jump the gun when they should have waited for Jesus to call Paul? You know what? I, I miss, actually did not even put this in, in the notes, and, and I missed this. When, 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 when um, Peter was telling the disciples, I want to back up for just a minute. When Peter was telling this 120 people, about Judas, and he said, the Holy Spirit wrote this through David. It's one of the clearest references in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Um, a lot of people think, well, the disciples missed the Holy Spirit here. They should, have, they should have waited because clearly Paul was supposed to be the 12th apostle. Uh, the Bible really doesn't say. It's just speculation one way or the other. I'm, I'm sort of kind of amused sometimes when people get so excited about things that the Bible doesn't speak to, really. Was Matthias the right guy or not? Who cares? He was chosen that day, and we never hear from him again. 
But we never hear from any of the other 12 apostles other than Peter, James, and John. Those are the only three we ever hear from again in the New Testament. So maybe Matthias, maybe not. What's important here is that the the apostles were choosing godly leadership. There's no reason to automatically assume it was a mistake. The only other apostle apostle was Paul who called himself as one who was untimely born because he didn't follow Jesus in his ministry. But he saw the resurrected Lord and Jesus very specifically pointed him out and said, you are to be my disciple. So there were 13 apostles in all. And it was very important. This role in the early church was very crucial because... The New Testament wasn't written. It was being written, and I'm not sure that they understood initially that they were writing the Word of God. They began to get a sense of it. We see in the New Testament, Peter talked about some of Paul's letters as being God's Word, and, and, and we get the sense that they were understanding that this was happening. But especially at the very beginning of the church, it was some 10, 15 years, at least 15, 20 years before any of the epistles were written. And at the very first, the apostles could walk into a church, stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, this is what God is telling this group of people. This is His truth, and this truth would not only be true for this group of people, but for the entire church. The apostles had that kind of authority. Once the apostles died, that authority no longer exists In the church, these were people who had been very specifically chosen for that role. There's no more direct revelation from God through people to us. But Ephesians 4 links teachers in the church very closely with apostles. Even though teachers don't have anything close to the authority that the apostles had, They are nonetheless appointed by God to teach His ways to the church. It all has to come from the Word. Listen, I hope that you don't just take notes every Sunday when I'm preaching and say, I'm going to find out if that's true. I'm going to find out if that's true. But hey, if you ever hear anything that you're not sure about, you need to check it out. And bring it to my attention. Bring it to the elders' attention. If you think that something is not being said that's correct. The apostles had a different role. When they said, thus saith the Lord, that's what the Lord was saying. And you didn't question it at all. Well, in Acts 2, and and, and you see what they were doing when they were waiting, they were praying, and they they were in the Word. And so Acts 2, the big day, arrives, one of the most exciting days in all of history, Pentecost, which was 50 days from the first Sunday after Passover. It was known by the Jews as the Feast of Weeks, the time when the Lord offered the first fruits of their crops, uh, excuse me, when the Jews offered the first fruits of their crops to the Lord in gratitude for what He had done for them. You know, here it is again. We see this all over Scripture. God gives to us, and out of gratitude, we give back a tithe, a portion of what He has given to us, back to Him. Those who do not give to the Lord's work, first and foremost, lack an understanding and appreciation for what God's done for them. 
you know, it's not just a matter of saying, well, you're not fulfilling your duty to to tithe to the Lord. That's That's not the first focus. The first focus is, my goodness, look at what God has done for you. You're, it's a privilege to give back to him. Just think about what was given to the church on this day of first fruits. As promised, both in the Old Testament and by Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and he baptized believers who were gathered together. There is so much to say about the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to have to limit my comments here and going to put some verses on the screen. You can run these down and, and verify and study, and it'll lead you to more and more. Really, really the awesome thing to do would be to go back after this next week when we look at the sermon that Peter preached and just, just look at those chapters, verse, chapters 13 to 16 in the Gospel of John. That last night when he talked so much of what he said had to do with the Holy Spirit. Before we talk just briefly about this day when the Spirit came on the the believers at at Pentecost in Jerusalem, just want to say one word about the study that we're doing. Tim Keller uh, in our, our home groups. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, New York. Uh, the study that we're doing this week in a study which, frankly, a lot of you will not get to because of going to the service at Campbell tonight, and you'll be skipping this particular passage. What a shame. What he has said, his summary about the the fullness of the Spirit is among one of the best I have ever seen, and I have read a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, And and what Keller has to say is some of the best. And I want to encourage you... once again, to have enough interest in this study, and I know it's, it's not, some, some of you would say, look, it's not a matter of interest, it's a matter of time. I understand that. But just let me encourage you, think about getting the leader's notes from your home group leader. If you don't belong to a home group, talk to David, talk to me. We'll make sure to forward you the electronic version of the home group notes. It's $5. Five, surely you can come up with $5. If you get the notes and you don't give us the $5, we'll have some of the boys come and see you. <clears throat> I'm sure it will be no problem. The baptism of the Spirit comes to every person who repents of sin and trusts Jesus as Savior. That's going to make... He, this, this was the initial baptism of the Spirit. But the Spirit baptizes every believer into the body of Christ every, at the point of salvation. It's going to make more sense to you if you'll write down and, and look up 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, where we're told that the baptism of the Spirit happens to all believers. It doesn't say it exactly like that, but it's clearly what's intended with, to this group of carnal Christians in Corinth. He said, all of you were baptized into the body by His Spirit. It happens one time, it's once and for all, the baptism of the Spirit. Also, check out Ephesians 4, 4-6, through 6, where we're told that there's one Spirit, there's one baptism. That's it. One baptism. The filling of the Spirit, however, does, not, does happen repeatedly in the lives of, of Christ followers. Now, 
as we said last week, all that we read in the book of Acts is not normative. In other words, if the Spirit did something one way on this particular occasion, it doesn't mean that He does it every time. Some things are repeatable. We'll get to those in just a minute. But there are some things that are not repeatable. Like, for instance, almost everything that happened on that day, a mighty rushing wind. You do see that later in the book of Acts. I'm not exactly sure where. We do see it one time when the Spirit comes. But these divided tongues of fire, fire in the shape of tongues that were upon over their heads, and, and then the proclamation of the Word of God in a language that they didn't know. Let me ask you, when you were saved, did you hear a mighty rushing wind? Did, did fire dance over your head? Did you proclaim the mighty works of God in a language that you didn't know? No. That's not repeatable. Will God ever do that again? I, I don't know. There's no evidence that He has. But He could. But He's not... But it's not normative. This is not the way. This was a very special day. It was saying to the world, it's a new day. The Holy Spirit has come. But because the mighty works of God were being proclaimed in languages that people could understand, there's that connection with the past. Now, there's a lot in the book of Acts that we see. When we see the fullness of the Spirit coming on people, we see certain... Uh, attitudes, uh, certain activity that is, that is repeated. It, it happens over and over again. The, the Spirit fills believers at different times and for different purposes. Here are a couple of things that are, that are repeatable. The Spirit always lives in the hearts of Christians, but when the fullness of the Spirit comes upon them more so than at other times. There's always a strong sense of God's presence and love that accompanies the filling of the Spirit. This thought overwhelmed me this week in a very good way. You remember when Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove? And the father said, this is my son. I'm pleased. I love him deeply. When the Spirit of God comes upon you in his fullness, there is always that sense, deep sense of his presence and his smile. Look, so many of us live with such guilt because of our legalistic past. And, and we always, as, as, as human beings, we tend toward legalism. We fail to, uh, to allow the Spirit to comfort us the way that He does. And He does that oftentimes in preparation for a difficult time. The fullness of the Spirit is almost always accompanied by a proclamation of the mighty works of God. And it's important to remember as we go through Acts that the, that the Spirit and the Word are inseparable. There's also an undeniable connection between prayer and the fullness of the Spirit. There are cases such as when Stephen was called to give an explanation and he did so. And it got, made him so mad, there's, you know, you don't see prayer before that. He was filled with the Spirit, though. And he proclaimed the mighty works of God. But over and over, we see a connection 
between prayer and the Spirit coming in power on a group of people. And almost always, it's in preparation for some great temptation or persecution. When you see people proclaiming the Word in the book of Acts, a lot of people got get mad. You know, we have a lot of people in our church right now that are going through a very difficult time. Helen Jernigan got tough news this week. Harold and Helen and the family, Mike Terry, Josh Kim, Danny Debbie, all, it's a tough time for the Jernigans when this mass that was taken out is back and it's intertwined with blood vessels. And you know what? As I talked to Helen on the phone this week, I sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit comforting her and she proclaimed the mighty works of God. She trusts God more than any person I know. You do, Helen. I've ever known. It's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He's such a comfort. And he prepares us. Seems like preparation is always occurring, isn't it? We're praying, we're studying the Word, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and He's preparing us for temptation or for, for persecution or for a hard time. Aren't you glad God has given us the blessed Holy Spirit? We're going to see so much about him. And you know what we're going to see? Just like David read this morning, he's going to be pointing us to Jesus. He's going to be constantly exalting God the Father and Jesus. And he's going to be comforting and loving us and assuring us that God loves us deeply. He has us in his hands. And he's not only sovereign, but he's good. And he's also going to be charging us to tell the world this incredible news and not everybody's going to like it. Some people were amazed on that day. Look at the works of God. Others said they're just drunk. They're out of their minds. Which sets up the sermon that Peter will preach next week. Well, is there anything else? Of course. There's just no time. Just no time. One of the things that we see, again, what an interesting thing that, that, that the Spirit came at the Feast of Weeks, the, the first fruits when, when people give back. Because we were blessed with this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus said, just as we have been given, so we are to give. Just as we have received now we are to give. We're to give the gospel. And one of the ways that we share the gospel is in our gracious, loving acts to one another first and then to those outside of our body. Every uh, Sunday or the last Sunday of every month, we take a benevolence offering. Joe Iello is the uh, deacon, one of our deacons. He is in charge of the benevolence offering. There he comes. Joe, come on up. And uh, I couldn't find him uh, a while ago. And Joe is going to just tell us a little bit about what this offering does, and, and, um, and he's the guy you need to find. If you know someone in need, uh, talk to Joe first. He's, he works with other people, but Joe is the, is the point man on this.